Well, I want to begin by thanking Mitch Klein and Bill Wayland and Ryan Kearns and Brian Hansen for preaching for me uh, while I was gone. I've had a chance to listen to most of their sermons, and I'm man, just so thankful for each of them and, and for preachers that have served our church family so well. I love hearing different voices in the pulpit. Uh, one thing that Ryan Kearns said as I listened to it that, that kind of stuck out to me I liked was, was that the Psalms are kind of like the soundtrack to our lives. The Psalms reflect the entirety of the human experience, from joy to depression, from celebrations to sorrows, to, um, from, from community to loneliness, from life to death. And this roller coaster of highs and lows that we see in the Psalms it really serves as a very helpful backdrop as we transition back into the Gospel of John today. Uh, in the life of Jesus, we discover that we are not alone on our journey to the peaks and the valleys of life. Uh, we are not the first ones to tread this path. Our God, Jesus Christ, has walked this same path before us. He knows what you and I are going through today. He... Uh, he knows how we're feeling, and he has compassion for us, and he offers us eternal help and friendship. And today we're going to look at John 13, verses 31 to 34. And as you're turning there, if you've got your Bible with you, let me remind you kind of what's been going on in, in this gospel. Jesus ministered publicly for three years with his 12 disciples, and now Jesus has come to his last night on earth, and it's his final meal. And for his final meal, he invites his 12 disciples and uh, they gather together in an upper room in Jerusalem to eat the Passover feast together. And as they eat this Passover meal together, we discover that Jesus actually himself is the fulfillment of all that this meal signifies in front of them. He is the lamb that is slain to save sinners from the wrath of God toward their sin. He is the lamb. And, and just like the Psalms are filled with highs and lows, so also this Last Supper is filled with highs and lows. Jesus begins by washing his disciples' feet for them, and he tells them that the only way that they can have any part of him is if they let him wash them. And in the same way, the only way that you and I can have any part of Jesus is if we trust in him to clean our souls with his blood that he shed on the cross for our sin. And after washing his disciples' feet, Jesus commands his 12 disciples and, um, and all of us who are his disciples to follow his example, to, to radically serve others as he has served us, even those who betray us. And then after that, Satan, the leader of the demons, we read, enters into Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12 disciples. And then working together, Satan and Judas stand up off the ground. They leave the room to go tell the Jewish authorities where they can arrest Jesus at night, where the crowds won't be around to see anything. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows what Judas is doing. And Jesus knows he has very t uh, little time left to be with his disciples. He knows that time is short to give them instructions for what to do next. And so 
that brings us to this passage today in John 13, verses 31 to 34. <clears throat> Before we read this, let's ask God to help us with his word. We, uh, we come to you, Father, and we ask you for help. We thank you for giving us your word, your Bible, so that we can know the truth about you. You tell us that every word of Scripture is breathed out by you. As we read this today, please minister to us, Holy Spirit. We need to be taught by you. And I imagine that in a room this big, some of us know you, Lord, and some of us don't. So we ask that you would work powerfully today through your word to give us what each of us need. Please save souls today. Help people to see you for who you are, to see your infinite value and worth. Please encourage us today. Please convict us. Please shape us into your image so that you might be more uh, fully glorified and worshiped in our lives and at the same time so that we might find more and more joy in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start just by looking at verse 31. John 13, 31 says, when he, parentheses Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. In order to really better understand this verse, okay, let's, let's ask three questions about it. First of all, what does it mean to be glorified? We've talked about this in the past, but uh, Jesus uses this word glorified about 13 times at the Last Supper. And so it's going to help us to know what he's talking about. To glorify something is to call attention to the supreme value and beauty of something, okay? So for God to be glorified means that someone or something calls attention to his infinite beauty and, and, and um, worth and exalts him above everything else. That's what it means to be glorified. And, and so the second question then is, how does Judas betraying Jesus glorify God? Because Jesus uses this word now. Jesus, I'm glorified. How does Judas betraying Jesus call attention to God's infinite beauty and value? It seems that Judas is devaluing Jesus, not calling attention to his infinite value. Well, Judas is devaluing Jesus. He has devalued Jesus. Judas is, is setting a trap for Jesus so that Jesus will be unfairly arrested, condemned, whipped, and killed. And according to the wisdom of God, this is exactly how God will be glorified most. Okay. Now in the eyes of humans, this seems foolish. This is a foolish way, a foolish plan to bring glory to God. We could brainstorm all sorts of ways to exalt God that don't involve Jesus being beaten to a pulp and hung on a cross. We could sing worship songs to God for a week. We could uh, give God all of our money. We could, uh, or God could make animals and mountains shout out praises to him. But 
Don't make God be slaughtered like a lamb. That does not make sense. That's foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, and, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus' life, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection was the pathway that God ordained for Jesus to be most glorified, for Jesus to be most valued, most treasured as the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all who believe in him. The way of the cross the way of his eternal suffering here. This is, this is the way that God predestined to reveal his infinite love and justice, holiness and goodness to all creation for all time. And Judas is the one who hands Jesus over to go to the cross. This is how Judas betraying Jesus calls attention to God's infinite value and worth. And our third question about Verse 31 is this. Who is glorified? Who does it say is glorified? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One of them, two of them, three of them. This is important, okay? The Bible teaches that there is only one God in existence. There's one God. This one God created you and me. It's, the Bible says he created the world. He created the universe Bible says that you and I are accountable to this God, our creator, that we will uh, be judged by him after our lives on earth and that we will stand before him trusting either in our own merits or in the merits of Christ to save us. There's only one God and the Bible teaches that this one God consists of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. It's called the Trinity. It's a mystery. And each of the three persons in God are equal in worth, they're equal in deity, and they each have a different role. And in verse 31, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is an ancient title that essentially means Savior, and he says that now the Son of Man is betrayed. The Son of Man is glorified. And at the very same time, Jesus says, God the Father is glorified in Jesus. Okay. So this is the point. 
The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And when one of them are glorified, all of them are glorified. Okay. Jesus is reminding us here, and he's going to remind us again and again. Because we must have difficulty believing this, just like the disciples did. That he is one with God the Father. Okay. This God that from eternity past people have prayed to, it is Jesus. Okay. He is fully God just like the Father and the Spirit. So what this means as worshipers for us is that we only worship God when we're worshiping the Father and the Son, Jesus, and the Spirit. If we try to add to the Trinity, or if we try to take a person away from the Trinity, we're not worshiping God. Scripture says, in that case, when we're not worshiping God, people are actually worshiping demons. And only when we worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are we truly worshiping God, because that's who God is. If you're not worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you're not worshiping God. So it's not truthful or accurate to say that Christians and Jews and Muslims and Remote African tribes all worship the same God simply because we were created by the same God. Some people say, well, we all worship the same God. We just call him different names. This is reality, you guys. Um, The Muslims and the Jews may call God Father, but they don't worship Jesus. Get that? They take Jesus out. So they sadly don't worship God. And throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, there have been cults and heresies and movements that have tried to take out a person of the Trinity. And every mutation of Christianity that tries to add to the Trinity, either by worshiping saints or ancestor worship or a human person, all of those movements are out of alignment with the Bible. They are. We worship God when we worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, nothing more, nothing less. And this is what the Bible teaches. And and many people, including maybe some of us in this room, were taught wrong. We were taught wrongly. Many people have been misled. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then an important part of the mission that Jesus has given you is to reach out to misinformed people and to love them and to serve them and to teach them the truth about God. And you don't have to be a, a master theologian to do that. You point people to God's word. <laughs> the word speaks for itself. It's our authority, the Bible. And so the answer to our third question is that God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are equally glorified in the betrayal of Jesus because God is one. Now let's move on to verse 32, in which Jesus says, if God is glorified in him, Jesus, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So when you see that word God, when Jesus is using that, he's talking about God the Father, that person, okay? So if God the Father is glorified in Jesus, God the Father will also glorify him in himself and glorify Jesus at once, okay? 
So in addition to the world and all of creation glorifying Jesus because of what he's about to do, Jesus says that God the Father will also glorify Jesus in himself. And in one sense, God the Father glorifies uh, Jesus in himself during all of these terrible circumstances that are about to happen because even though Jesus is on earth, he's still united to God the Father. He is in the heart of the Father himself. And in another sense, God the Father would glorify the Son in himself when Jesus ascended back to heaven. 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus would return to the Father in heaven where he would reclaim the heavenly glory that was his before he came to earth. And the Father would exalt his Son in a more glorious and incredible new way as the Lamb of God who has completed the mission of being slain, of being resurrected for the glory of God and for the eternal joy of all peoples who trust in God. And Jesus says that the Father will glorify him at once, okay? which means that this glorification in this passage is imminent. It's near. He's saying, keep your eye out for this. Because it's going to look a lot different than the disciples thought it would look. Now remember this. Jesus saying all of these things okay, over dinner in a small room. About a dozen people in the room. And in these final hours with his disciples, he tells them a lot of these complex truths like we just talked about, which are really heady, hard to grasp. But he also provides very concrete instructions for the disciples. And we need both. You get that? We need both. Because these truths that Jesus shares are the catalyst for our actions. Only when we understand and believe these truths of Jesus can we then do what Jesus says for the right motives with the power of God helping us. And Jesus knows that we're only people. He knows that some of this stuff is hard for us to understand, and that's okay. That's why he wants us to come back to the Word. This isn't a a one-day-a-week project. He wants us to meditate on Scripture daily so that these truths will soak in more and more so that we'll understand them with the help of the Spirit. And praise God, Jesus is gracious with us. He's patient with us. He loves us dearly. And that's why in the next verse, Jesus refers to his disciples as little children. He calls them little children. Keep in mind, these are full-grown men, rough around the edges, commercial fishermen and tax collectors. And Jesus speaks at their level, and he says in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while am I with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus tells the disciples that he will only be with them a little longer. He's going somewhere they can't come. He's going to suffer and die and rise again. He's going to go to heaven, and they can't come to heaven with him yet. The disciples are going to see some of the glory of Christ as he's killed and buried and resurrected, but they're not going to see him in all of his heavenly glory yet because Jesus has work for the disciples, the church, to do still on earth. 
you and I fit into this. Jesus has purposeful work for you and for me to do on earth. Whatever vocations we may have, wherever we may live, we are to spread the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to the ends of the earth together so that all who believe in Christ will be saved. And as you and I do this, as individuals and as a church family at Cedar Home, Jesus tells us he wants us to do this a certain way. So look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So as a church family, together, by the power of God, we are pushing back evil. We're pushing back the darkness in our lives, in this world, by the power of Jesus and his gospel. This is an incredible mission. Okay. And at Cedar Home, specifically, we are doing this through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. And this is the duty and privilege that Jesus gave us to partake in. And Jesus says that as we do this, our trademark must be love for one another. Our trademark must be love for one another. At first glance, that sounds simple enough. But let's dig deeper here and ask three questions about verse 34. First, why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Didn't God tell us to love one another in the Old Testament? Yeah, God tells us several different times, several different ways in the Old Testament, to love one another. So, so why does Jesus call this a new commandment? Well, since God reveals himself to us in a new way in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh, our understanding of what it means to love one another is now much more fully informed. Okay? God's love can now be better expressed in us and through us because Christ has come. Jesus, think about this. Jesus taught us new things about the love between him and God the Father, which we didn't know, which wasn't clear until he said it. This serves as a model for how we should love one another. Jesus showed us the extent of God's love for us by going to the cross for us. This is our example of how we should love one another. Jesus taught us not only to love those who love us, but also to love our enemies. And Jesus not only taught that, he modeled it, as we've seen around this dinner table he's at. And by his example, Jesus showed us what it truly looks like to love the Lord and to love one another. Remember that before Jesus came, the scriptures had been misapplied and misused over the centuries And so Jesus taught us and showed us how to correctly follow God's law and what our motives should be for doing that. And so Jesus' commandment to love one another is a new commandment because loving one another means something much deeper, much clearer, and much more powerful now that Jesus has come. 
Now let's ask a second question about verse 34. Whom are we supposed to love? Who's Jesus talking to here in the room? The disciples. And three times Jesus will tell them to love one another. He doesn't say love others. He says love one another. So Jesus is talking here to the first leaders of the Christian church. He's telling them that as Christians, you must love one another in your church. You must love your Christian brothers and sisters. Of course, we also love Christian brothers and sisters outside our local church. We love non-Christians. We, 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 we seek to love our enemies too. We already talked about that. But specifically in this small upper room with only a dozen or so people, Jesus is saying that as Christians, we must love one another in our church. This leads us to our third and most important question about verse 34. What does it mean to love one another? How are we supposed to love one another? Many of us Christians are very good at talking about loving one another, but in reality, we don't really know what that entails. In fact, we may very well be better at loving non-Christians than loving our Christian brothers and sisters. So what does it mean to love one another in the church? Well, love is, is not just about being friendly to people. It's good, but it's not love fleshed out all the way. Love is not about trying to make everybody happy. Love is not just a warm feeling in your heart that if you feel that, you're like, oh, that's love. I know what that feels like. Love is much deeper than that. And if we want to know how to love one another as Christians, then we have to focus on Jesus' key phrase in verse 34, which says, just as I have loved you. This is how we're supposed to love one another. Just as Jesus has loved us. That's how we're supposed to treat one another in the church. And the definition of truly loving one another then is the way that Jesus has already acted toward you and me. So Jesus is saying that love looks a specific way. Okay? That way is his way. That's what he's saying. He's, he's claiming exclusivity on what love looks like. That's why 1 John 4 says that God is love. The meaning of love is not for us to define. Love is already completely defined in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Now to see... Um, how Jesus has modeled loving one another for us, we, we need only to look at his words and actions in the four Gospels. And also, since the entire Bible is Jesus' word, then we can learn to love one another by reading what Jesus tells us to do for one another in all of Scripture. Uh, last night, I, I looked at every place in the New Testament where we're commanded to treat one another a certain way. It's a fascinating exercise to do if you're ever interested. Go to BibleGateway.com and just type in one another and then click New Testament. And it'll pop up every time that phrase shows up in the New Testament. And all of the one another's in the New Testament in the context of the local church have to do with serving one another 
and helping our brothers and sisters in Christ just like Jesus has served and helped us. And I think that one of the main reasons why so many Christians don't know how to love one another is because we mistakenly take our cues from culture and from our friends and from our feelings instead of taking our cues from Jesus and his word. And so as we, as we try to define how to love one another as Jesus has loved us, we have to not only talk about what love is, but also we have to talk about what love is not. Okay? We have to not only look at Jesus' example, but also we have to identify how we might be tempted to love one another wrongly. Perhaps incorrect ways that we've learned from our culture, our friends, our families, our feelings. And so, so as we talk about this this morning and next week about loving one another, let me start today by just listing two ways that Jesus hasn't loved us, according to John's gospel. And this will conflict with our culture's definitions of love. First, Jesus has not loved us by encouraging us to do whatever feels best to us. We live in a world that defines love according to our feelings. So we might think that we're helping people by telling them, just follow your heart, just follow your feelings. When in reality, if we do that, we might be helping to destroy them. Our society tells us that if you choose to get married, then you should get married, stay married, as long as your spouse makes you feel happy. As long as you feel in love, you should stay married. But as soon as that spark's gone, then you have permission to follow your heart. It's time for you to find somebody else who can make you feel that way again. Now, obviously, the Bible gives legitimate reasons to get divorced, but Not feeling in love with your spouse is not one of them. Our society is encouraging kids. And when you think about where we're at, we're at the point where we are encouraging kids to pick the bathroom that feels right to them. If you're feeling like a little boy, use the boy's bathroom. But if you feel like a little girl, use the girl's bathroom. Now this is reality. My heart goes out to the very small percentage of kids, teens, adults who are legitimately confused about their gender and their sexuality because they're there. And as Christians, we need to love them and help them however we can. But we don't love one another better by telling all the kids that they should try to determine their own gender by themselves, guided only by their feelings. How confusing is that for kids? And in the church, if we follow our feelings, we're going to do great harm to this body. We're going to do great harm to ourselves and to our families very quickly. Our feelings, our hearts, must not be the compass for our lives because the Bible tells us our hearts are terribly deceitful. Your heart's deceitful. The model of Jesus is not one of following one's feelings. If Jesus had followed his feelings and done what was 
What felt best for him, I guarantee you, he wouldn't have bowed down before uh, Judas and washed his feet at the Last Supper. Jesus would not have told Judas, go, betray me. Jesus would not have offered his body to be slaughtered on our behalf if he was following his feelings. If Jesus had done what felt best to him, then he would have abandoned us. Jesus would have abandoned us if he followed his feelings, but Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he sacrificed himself for us so that we could be saved if we trust in him. And so also, we must sacrifice ourselves for others, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But Jesus hasn't loved us by encouraging us to do whatever feels best to us, and so we must follow Jesus' example and not encourage one another to let our emotions be our guide. And second, Jesus has not loved us by loving people more than God. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But we must keep these in the correct order. God first, people second. Many of us either care for one another so much or we are so scared of one another that we are more loyal to one another than to God. And sadly, this is how some pastors, some churches go astray. I know pastors, Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. Help me not and pray for me that I don't become like this. I know of pastors who love people so much that they change their beliefs about the Bible and they change their beliefs about God in order to align with the world's ever-changing definitions of love. To be progressive. That's That's the term out there. I'm a progressive Christian. And unfortunately... We're not really loving people when we do that. (laughs) I know pastors who love people so much that their entire ministry is a political game in which they work hard to try to keep happy the people in the church with the power instead of following your convictions. And unfortunately, those pastors aren't truly loving people because they're not truly loving God. They're not truly obeying God. They're not doing what God tells them to do. Instead, they're idolizing people. They're afraid of people. And as a result, they're destroying themselves and their churches. And I know of Christian men and women in churches who think that loyalty to friends is the highest virtue. And they're wrong. Loyalty to God is a much higher virtue. I'd rather lose all my peers as I seek to follow Jesus than to keep my friends who like me because I'm too scared to actually be like Jesus. Following Jesus like that. But listen, 
If you really follow Jesus like that, as we want to and try to, that is hard. And that is lonely. And that is often painful. Brothers and sisters, it's wonderful to love people. We love people, but we must look at Jesus and the Bible to learn how. To learn how to truly love them. We learn how to love people by learning how Jesus loved us. It should be no surprise to us to see people try to please one another instead of to follow the Lord. Because of our sin, it's our default nature to do what's sinful and easy rather than to do what's right and difficult. You hear that? Listen, you can be one of the nicest people and have everybody in your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, and your church like you and be happy with you and think you are a great guy or a great gal and you can be totally out of the will of God. When you and I look at Jesus' life, as we've studied him in the gospel according to John, do we see a person eager to please people at all costs? Do we see a person who was loyal to the masses at all costs? Of course not. It's because Jesus was a man of conviction. Jesus lovingly called out the disciples when they were acting inappropriately. Jesus called out the Jewish teachers who were teaching the people, you must be saved by doing works, not by trusting in God. Jesus lovingly called out the Samaritan woman at the well who was living in sin. Jesus lovingly called out the massive crowds that followed him because, not because they believed he was God, but because they just wanted to get stuff from him. Now hear me right, loving one another isn't about being a know-it-all who is actually just goes around pointing out all the sins of his brothers and sisters. But loving one another, part of loving one another, is actually about loving God more than we love people and having the courage to obey God's commands in Scripture even if we lose the admiration of people. That's hard. And obviously, Jesus exemplified this perfectly. Jesus loved people, and he loved God the Father more. Jesus always did what was right, not what was easiest, and he had, had he done it any other way, then you and I could not be saved. Jesus has not loved us by being more loyal to people than to God, and may you and I, in this family, Truly seek to love God first so that we can learn how to love one another. We'll talk about that more next week. But Jesus hasn't loved us by doing what felt best to him or by loving people more than he loved the Father. And next week what we're going to do is we're going to flip the perspective and we're going to talk about how Jesus has loved us which will add to our definition of what it means to love one another in the church. For you today, I don't know what you're going through, but I pray that you and I this week will take time to listen to God, to seek the Lord, to read the word, to believe him when he tells you that he loves you, even if you don't feel like he loves you. To believe that he's with you, even if you can't sense his presence. 
You ever feel like that? I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking. I don't feel God though. I don't sense his presence. Have you ever been there? We believe though that God's promises are true. His word is sure. He's listening to every one of our prayers even if he doesn't talk back. Jesus knows the trials and temptations you're going through right now. And he wants you to turn to him and give them to him. If you ask him to save you from your own guilt, from your own failures, from your own sins, then he will. Turn to Jesus. That's what we need to do. We need to turn to Jesus this week and we can approach God confidently. Listen, Satan doesn't want you to turn to God. But you can approach God confidently on the basis of Jesus' merits, not on your merits, okay? So when you pray to God, you don't say, God, I'm not worthy. Of course you're not worthy. We can say, say, I'm not worthy. Of course I'm not worthy. But because of you, God, you want me to come to you. You laid your son down on the cross so that his merits are my merits, so that I can come now through faith to Jesus Christ on his merits alone, which don't change and will be for eternity. That's how we approach God confidently, on Jesus' merits, not our own. So as a church, may God's spirit move powerfully among us so that we encourage one another and serve one another and show kindness to one another and speak well of one another and give to one another and love one another as Jesus has loved us, even when it's hard. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. And Lord, we do say, we come to you and say, we know we're not worthy of you, but thank you, God, that you are the bridge to yourself. Jesus, we trust in you and in your perfection. Thank you for calling us to you. Please help us to meditate on this this week, God. And None of us love you the way you deserve to be loved. And again, that's why we need you and your cross. Help us to be encouraged, Lord, knowing that you are for us. Help us to forgive others and to forgive ourselves for the wrongdoings in the past, just as you have forgiven us. Help us to be a church characterized by love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.